with all three of those, I would submit so knowledge, experience, and judgment, I think that develops wisdom. So for me, I tried to figure out where I was lacking or I had a gap in knowledge and then try to gain some of that as I would go back to school so that then I could apply that in future assignments. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, WarDocs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. On this episode, we are privileged to welcome retired Army Colonel Dr. Russ Coatwall to Wardox. He graduated from Texas A&M University and initially served in the Army as a Medical Service Corps officer prior to attending the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences. Dr. Coatwall has completed two residencies, one in family medicine and the other in aerospace medicine, and he also holds a Master's of Public Health from UT Galveston. He has held Army operational assignments including 75th Ranger Regimental Surgeon and Deputy Surgeon of the U.S. Army Special Operations Command at Fort Bragg. Dr. Coatwall has been a significant contributor to many paradigm-shifting publications in the area of tactical combat casualty care and pre-hospital medicine, and has served as Director of Trauma Care Delivery for the Joint Trauma System. This is part two of our WarDocs interview. If you haven't already, we hope you get a chance to listen to part one of this conversation available on WarDocs Podcast. So you mentioned that you completed a aerospace medicine residency and got a master's in public health. So armed with that, you were then assigned as the regimental surgeon for the 75th Ranger Regiment. During that time, you deployed a couple times to Iraq and seven times to Afghanistan. Can you tell us some memorable experiences from that and how that experience of being an aerospace medicine resident and having that public health background helped you learn things that maybe you wouldn't have if you didn't have that experience? What I'll tell you, I mean, I'm going to back up a second to, to just the basics. So to me, as we go through different schools and we go through formal education, that helps us with our knowledge base. And then as we go through life and we're in different assignments and different jobs, we gain experience. And while we're gaining those experiences, we apply a certain degree of judgment. Sometimes that's optimal and sometimes it's suboptimal, but hopefully we're learning in both respects of how to apply judgment as we move forward and continue to apply that. With all three of those, I would submit so knowledge, experience, and judgment, I think that develops wisdom. So for me, I tried to figure out where I was lacking or I had a gap in knowledge and then try to gain some of that as I would go back to school so that then I could apply that in future assignments. And so with aerospace medicine, there are three entities that started out in Galveston. So NASA, the Navy, and uh, and the Army all had different physicians going through the program, uh, Masters of Public Health program there in Galveston, University of Texas Medical Branch. And then from there, the Army docs and Navy docs went to Pensacola, whereas the docs for NASA went, went their route up at NASA. And, uh, and so with going out to Pensacola, learned a lot as, as we were put through their aviation course, along with pilots and navigators to learn how to fly, where we learned about fixed-wing aircraft, rotor-wing aircraft, did some flying of both, learned about what happens in the back. And so I thought all that was instrumental in what I did in the future. So what I learned in, in the Master's of Public Health with Biostatistics and Epidemiology, I continued to use for the rest of my career. 
And then same thing with aerospace medicine that that helped me to understand how to improve the care for for my guys in in the back of rotor wing and fixed wing aircraft for the rest of my career in the military. So no, I had I think that all that had great application for what I did. Some of your most memorable combat experiences during the time that you were the regimental surgeon. So thank you for limiting it to most memorable. So I ended up going on, on, I can't even count how many missions I've been on. And so both ground and air missions. And, and with that, luckily, most of the injuries on many of the missions that I went on were either enemy, but unfortunately, sometimes it was local national, but they were not the coalition forces or, or U.S. forces. And, and so the, the most memorable, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop for a second, if you don't mind. So part of it, when you when you work with a unit through time, an organization through time, and I spent uh, nine years with with the Rangers, you get to know uh, a lot of individuals, and it becomes uh, sort of like your family. And and in that respect, it's harder whenever you see somebody that gets injured or killed that's part of your family, somebody that you eat with, you sleep with, you go on exercises with, you do things with, and so very very difficult with each mission. And uh, each year that I did the job, it became more and more difficult as it was harder and harder to uh, to see the guys. And so when you when you say most memorable, the ones that are most remarkable are unfortunately negative experiences that occurred as as I was treating colleagues, if you will. And so sure that that occurred earlier, and uh, with that story with John and with with others that uh, were injured in Afghanistan and Iraq when I was a battalion surgeon, but I continued to do so more and more with each deployment that I went on. So, so you probably can tell it's it's actually kind of difficult for me to talk about. So the hardest hardest missions that that I went on, the most remarkable ones, were not the ones that we were actually doing the assault and and doing the raid. The hardest ones were actually when we were ambushed. And unfortunately, there were, there are times, unfortunately, when we were in more of a vulnerable position of being ambushed. Although we had the cover of darkness and and had the advantage with our weapon systems during the cover of darkness, doesn't make it any easier when, when that happens. And so exchange of fire when you when you're in, in that scenario becomes very, very difficult as you're getting pinned down and and exchanging that fire with other other forces. And very, very difficult as as you see individuals get injured and then go to treat those individuals who have been injured. And so probably one of the most remarkable times is working out of, out of Salerno. And, and this was uh, this was in 2008, working out of Salerno and went into this uh, one mountain village, and which we found did not have enemy forces there. And so it was uh, what we thought was a dry hole. We went back, reset the following night, found that, that probably the enemy had moved out of that village and up into the canyon. And so we went into that, that canyon that following night and as we were patrolling up into that canyon, got a large volume of fire from a, a large group of enemy that, that were up in that canyon. And uh, due to that, had several folks that had sustained injuries. One of them, uh, a little bit more significantly, that needed to be evacuated out while we were still incurring fire. And so with that, had called in rotor wing platform that was in support for us. And uh, with that, we were able to hoist that individual out. And he did did live and uh, did well. But with that, there were other individuals that we had to continue to to treat on the ground until we ultimately were able to get out. We we moved out of that to that canyon. And uh, once we moved out of that canyon, we did post-assault fires as well because there was still a significant enemy force there. And in doing that, it, there was a delay in getting the other casualties back. Uh, all did fine, but it was just a, a significant and, and remarkable mission that we had uh, on the objective. One of the things I've neglected to talk to you about through this whole time is that 
through, through the years, and this, this started back in 1999 uh, when I was at Third Ranger Battalion, but what we what we strongly believed in was training everybody in the organization uh, to have some understanding, some knowledge, and gain some experience in medicine. And so regardless of whether it was an infantryman, mortarman, pack clerk, it didn't matter. Everybody having some understanding of medicine so that they could be a non-medical first responder as well. And so all these casualties on different missions got received a lot of assistance from non-medical first responders that were trained to a certain degree to help out on objectives and trained principally with, with trauma care, but also other care as well. So as the regimental surgeon, you were there for quite a while and you had battalion surgeons that you mentored that were with you. And you mentioned that it was a family. As you gained more combat experience in that unit, what was the advice and mentorship that you tried to bestow upon the other doctors and physicians that were in the unit with you? So when I became the regimental surgeon, I was also involved in the hiring and uh, the search and the hiring of, of different physicians that came to the organization and, and other medical PAs and as well, physicians assistants. And, and so with that, many of them were attracted to the regiment because of uh, a prior experience in infantry units or with the regiment, and so prior understanding. And then others with reading about it or hearing about it and the things that occurred at the range regiment. So even though I was a regimental surgeon, I was still going out on company missions. And, and part of that was I was filling holes downrange as we tried to have a medical officer or senior medic at each one of the locations that we had units conducting missions. And so, like I said before, units were going out on company or platoon type missions. And so having needing some medical direction in all those different areas was paramount. And so part of the mentorship to the battalion physicians and to, to physicians' assistants was just all of us getting on the same sheet of music as far as how care was to be provided, a sort of an understanding of how to provide training to outdoor organization so that everybody had a mastery of the basics in combat casualty care and an understanding of roles and the hierarchy and the center of gravity. And that center of gravity needed to be the medic within our organization as there were too few medical officers that were there. And so I would submit that probably standardization amongst um, the battalions, the companies, the platoons was beneficial so that we could actually conduct performance improvement. And so one of the main reasons why we collected data initially wasn't to, to publish those data, but it was to look at what we were doing and say, okay, are we providing the right care? Where's the gaps in our care? Where do we need to go external to our organization in order to have other people do research on our behalf because we have a certain gap? And so, yes, throughout the organization, everybody started collecting data. We did that on what we developed as a Ranger Casualty Card. And that Ranger Casualty Card became a format for the Army's Tactical Combat Casualty Card, which then became the format for the Department of Defense's Tactical Combat Casualty Care Card as well, or TC3 card. And so the other component, besides just collecting data on those from those casualty cards, was also doing a second opportunity for collecting data after we came off of missions. And we did that through AARs or after action reviews. And, uh, and we would collect data and we had a formal form for that so that we could have two opportunities to collect data. And then what we did with that data is we collected it and consolidated into a pre-hospital trauma registry, which we had built specifically for our organization. And we did that in, in collaboration with, with the Joint Trauma System and also Texas A&M University, specifically the Rural and Community Health Institute run by Nancy Dickey here at Texas A&M University. And so with that pre-hospital trauma registry, we then were able to simply graph 
those data and show that to commanders at all levels, company, battalion, uh, and regiment, and say, here is what we are seeing based on the wounding patterns and injuries. This is what we're seeing based on the care that we're providing. And with that performance improvement, we were able to justify monies not only for the program of collecting data and providing care, but also for expanding that to other organizations throughout the Department of Defense. One of the objectives in military medicine is to prevent or eliminate preventable death on the battlefield. And that's one of the things that the 75th Ranger Regiment became fairly well known for. Could you tell us a little bit about how that project went and how you got support from your line command to help you get that data to help prevent those deaths on the battlefield? Going back into the 90s, so 1993, the Battle of Mogadishu, with that, the Rangers were involved, Task Force Rangers, you may recall. It, some of the things that occurred during that operation were suboptimal from a medical standpoint, and that uh, we saw that in the AAR. And with that, we wanted to improve upon what could be done. And I think parts of that helped Frank Butler in his writing of his initial writing of Tactical Combat Casualty Care and Special Operations. And uh, with that article, the Rangers adopted many of those tenets, and uh, we integrated that into our programs of instruction there in the Ranger Regiment, starting in 1998-1999. And so every training opportunity, every time that we, we did anything, we, we tried to integrate in and train as we would fight and be as realistic, even with real-world casualties. And so if back in 1999, we seized an airfield and we incurred injuries, those injuries be part of the tactical system of care and then taken out accordingly from that mission, that training mission, and taken to a local hospital, just like we would do in combat to a to a, a forward surgical team or, or combat support hospital. And so we were practicing that in the 1990s before 2001 started. And so with that, collected some data from some of those training missions that were more, it wasn't really data, it was more anecdotes that we'd share with commanders to show, hey, TC3 is working according to what we're seeing. Yes, this is not true, true data, but, but it's helping as we applied it to training. And so they continued to be interested. And so in the early years, I thought it was very, very important to collect as much data as possible to provide that back to the commanders as feedback. But I think that Somalia helped convince a lot of rangers that collecting data and improving care was very, very important. Stanley McChrystal was one of the commanders for the Rangers back in the 90s. And uh, with what he did was he made as one of his big four priorities as uh, medical training. And so he understood that based off of things that occurred in Somalia and based off of other efforts that occurred otherwise. And so the commanders in the Ranger Regiment at, at lower levels keyed in on what Stanley McChrystal said. And that was that medical training would be important and would be one of the top four things of priority for medical training. And so then once we started collecting data and feeding that data back to those the, those commanders, that just reinforced everything that, that we did post-Somalia. And I would submit that probably the silver lining of Somalia for Rangers was that we probably helped to eliminate death, preventable death, in Iraq and Afghanistan because of it. So it wasn't just the data that we collected on casualties in the Ranger Regiment, but also the data that we collected as convinced the regimental commander that it was important to get the autopsies from APMES or the Armed Forces Medical Examiner Service. 
And so with every fatality that we had in the Ranger Reserve, we got that that autopsy and we would examine those and, and also look at any investigations that occurred because of those in detail uh, to see how uh, we could improve. And so all of it was performance improvement. And so in, in essence, I would talk about those injuries with the forensic pathologists up at, at APNES. One in particular that I talked to through the years was, uh, was actually uh, Dr. Mazahowski or Maz, who was a phenomenal forensic pathologist from the Air Force. But all of them up there were very, very helpful in helping us to understand what went on with our with those fatalities and to, to explain some of the things that we could do a little bit better in providing care uh, for those individuals too. And so I think it's incumbent upon us to not just learn from those casualties that go to the hospital, and but also to, to learn from those casualties that also pass away or the fatalities. So most military medical providers are not at the tip of the spear with these elite units, such as you were as battalion and regimental surgeon. And you were responsible in 2010 for training special operations at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and so many different medical providers during your career. Do you recall any particular clinical scenarios in which you saw the fruits of that labor? And as you went to those after action reviews, you thought, wow, we, we really have made a dramatic impact on the delivery of healthcare on the battlefield. I'd submit is by the time that I got up to USASOC, what I found was that there were a lot of organizations that were practicing the tenets of TC3 and doing great things and making a lot of progress within their own organizations. And I saw that in, in special forces groups. I saw that with the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment. I saw that in Naval Special Warfare and, and different teams and saw that in, in MARSOC or the Marine Special Operations Command, Marine Corps Special Operations Command, as, as well as uh, the Air Force Special Operations Command. So yes, it was uh, it was nice to see that uh, that a lot of things that had been done through the previous years, not just from the Rangers, but from, from many organizations that had learned in parallel, that we'd all come up with similar conclusions on how to provide care and to optimize that care in very austere scenarios. And, uh, and so I think, if anything, what, what was a pleasure when I was working up there was actually the to see the sharing of, of ideas. And, and I'd seen that in previous years when I was at the regiment and even at the battalion level, that as different organizations had lessons learned, they would share it within the community. And so I, I think that that is also very important. I mean, lessons learned aren't lessons learned unless you learn them. And so with that, I think that rangers learned internally, but they also learned from other organizations. There are some things you don't necessarily have to do in order to learn it. You might as well learn that from somebody else. And it is best learned from someone else on how to optimize certain TTPs or techniques, tactics, or procedures and medical care. What I truly enjoyed was seeing the collaboration amongst all the units, all the organizations. There wasn't a sense of rivalry. It was a sense of, of, of camaraderie that that everybody had shared in the mission of providing great care where we provided. And once I migrated even from USASOC to the Joint Trauma System, I saw that across the Department of Defense. And so regardless of the service, regardless of the organization, regardless of the division or brigade, I mean, you're seeing wonderful things that were coming from so many different units across the enterprise. And so it was good to see those, those data coming in from multiple different organizations, some more robust than others, but also seeing lessons learned for coming in from those organizations. The other thing is that uh, while the Joint Trauma System, and they later on put together the Defense Committees on Trauma, and so beyond the Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care was then also a committee for surgical combat casualty care and in route combat casualty care. And with all three of those committees, just seeing the, the phenomenal things coming from multiple different organizations from all services 
and from from so many different units. It was incredible to see all this come together. And I think that still it'll probably take another five, 10 years to document all that. And so would applaud how you're doing this with this War Docs Enterprise and podcast. I think that this is also a very important means or method to sort of accumulate lessons learned from what has occurred over 20 years of combat activities. So in your career, you've been involved in a lot of paradigm-changing research in the area of combat casualty care, prolonged field care, and root care. In your opinion, what are a couple of the most important papers that you've been involved with over your career that you think everyone should know about? I was an author on the manuscript, but probably one of the most important papers that uh, I was an author on was an article that was done by Brian Eastridge that uh, came out in 2012. And what you may recall for that Eastridge paper, it was called Death on the Battlefield 2001 and 2011, Implications for the Future of Combat Casualty Care. And I was uh, most honored to be one of those authors, but it was one of the mortality, early mortality studies where Brian Eastridge was able to accumulate a lot of data from about 60, 70% of uh, fatalities from Operation Enduring Freedom, Operation Iraqi Freedom, and Operation New Dawn. And so that were the years from 2001 through 2011. And so with that, I would submit that that's a very important paper. A lesson learned from that is, is showing that the number one mechanism of death for potentially survivable injuries during that time frame was hemorrhage. And so what you'll see from subsequent mortality reviews that have been conducted for Operation New Dawn, Operation Iraqi Freedom, I'm sorry, Operation Inherent Resolve, Operation Freedom Sentinel, and then also for SOCOM is that hemorrhage is the number one component when you're talking about uh, mechanisms of death. And so that is a uh, constant. Although what we saw was a reduction, if you look at that Brian, East, uh, Brian Eastridge's paper in 2012, saw a reduction of uh, fatalities from extremity hemorrhage as compared to Vietnam data. What I would submit is that there's still other areas of improvement to include junctional hemorrhage and, uh, and truncal hemorrhage. So that's, that's one manuscript that I would submit is probably one of the landmark articles and uh, that was done by Brian Eastridge. For, for me, as a primary author, probably um, the primary one was was the limiting preventable death on the battlefield that it did in reference to the Ranger casualties, and that was in uh, in 2011. And so, with that that manuscript, uh, we looked at all the casualties in the Ranger regiment and the uh, fatalities, and we did a comparison to conventional forces for percent KIA, percent tidal wounds. Uh, percent and uh, for uh, case fatality rate. And we found that the Ranger Regiment had done better in those respects as compared to forces overall. Uh, yes, the numbers were small, but we feel like that that helped to validate some of the things that we were doing, not only in reference to the tactical combat casualty care that was being provided, but to the fact that uh, care was being provided by not only the medical providers, but also non-medical providers as a good or a large proportion of hemorrhage control was performed by non-medical providers, as well as a large proportion of the tourniquets placed by non-medical providers. And so I think that also showed that the time is very important. And even though we didn't have time integrated as data points, I wish we had captured those timestamps. Very difficult to do in combat, but it showed us that time was important. So the earlier that you're able to do hemorrhage control, it makes sense that that keeps more red blood cells in circulation. And so very, very important to do hemorrhage control uh, to the best of your ability, for uh, especially for, for extremity hemorrhage, uh, junctional hemorrhage when possible, and then whatever you can do for truncal hemorrhage, although non-compressible hemorrhage is very, very difficult. And I would submit that's probably one of those things that, that research 
really, really needs to work on for, for future conflict. Another manuscript that I would submit that uh, would be important in talking about time was was an article that uh, that came out a little bit later on because I became interested in time. And with that, that was in the 2016. So in 2016, the article was the effect of a, of a golden hour policy on the morbidity and mortality of combat casualties. And so with that that article, what we looked at is we looked at uh, a decree by the Secretary of Defense at that time, which was uh, Gates. And SecDef Gates, who happened to be a uh, president of Texas A&M University, he had made a decree in, in June of 2009 that we would go to, to 60 minutes uh, for evacuation times. And so what I did was uh, I evaluated evacuation times before and evacuation times after and uh, looked at how that, that compared and with that saw a difference in, in evacuation times, which then saw a difference in case fatality rate. And, uh, and so with that actually saved lives. And so that I would submit is that started a, a, a sort of series of manuscripts on time that and how time is important and time specifically to capability. And so whether that be blood and blood transfusion or whether it be to, to surgical care or surgical capability. You spent time in the joint trauma system. And then after your retirement, you also worked with combat casualty care projects. What important tra- joint trauma system research questions do you think need to be answered today? And what improvements on battlefield care do you see in the next 10 to 20 years? I think I talked a little bit about it earlier on in reference to truncal hemorrhage control. And so how do we do that? So right now the solution is trying to get them to a surgical capability as quickly as possible. Okay, okay we can't do that. We can't always do that. Hard to do that, even when you're talking about uh, large-scale, high-intensity conflict. And so th- there's got to be a way that we can start addressing that truncal hemorrhage um, at an earlier time. And so just like we went to um, extremity hemorrhage and going to tourniquets and improving extremity tourniquets or limb tourniquets through the years, just like we went to junctional uh, tourniquets and now multiple junctional tourniquets and then trying to improve hemorrhage control through the years, we need to do the same thing now for truncal hemorrhage. And I think that there's a lot of folks working on that and both within the military and outside of the military. Beyond that, I think the other part, other component is how do we make it more ubiquitous for whole blood? and for blood transfusion across the enterprise. And so parts of this, if you go back and you look at World War II and you look at how the blood program evolved, you know, starting in World War II uh, and then in Korea and Vietnam, we, we learned a lot during World War II only to forget it very quickly prior to going into Korea. And then only to forget it again prior to going into Vietnam and to forget it again prior to going into Afghanistan and Iraq. And so there were a lot of benefits and a lot of things that they did with whole blood and blood transfusion in World War II. And we need to start thinking about how we can do that on a mass scale if ever we have a large scale type of conflict. What advice would you give to the current generation of military medical providers? What I'll tell you is this, is that in in the 1990s, during our training, we really did train as we were going to fight. And so we did all these procedures during training. And so whether it was real world injuries that we were doing or working with, or whether it was mannequins or live tissue, other things that we could do, we did it as, as frequently as we could in training so that it wasn't unique or odd once we went into combat. And so in 2001, when we went in, when, when our organization sees the airfield, you talk to everybody in the unit, they'll say, that was exactly like what we did in training. There's no difference. And for the care that was provided on the objective, for the few folks that had those orthopedic injuries, it was just like training. Subsequently, when we went on different targets and we had trauma from gunshot wounds and blast injuries, the medics would say the same thing. That was just like training. And so the thing is, how do you do that for role two and role three? 
And so oftentimes they don't give you the training that you need. Sure, you may have done it as a vascular surgeon in a very nice facility, but that's not the same as truly doing it in an austere environment, whether there's a tent or some other type of structure out in the middle of nowhere. I provided care in the back of a Jenga truck. I provided care on the back of a rotating platform in the back of a small fixed-wing aircraft in a variety of different structures, Afghani and Iraqi structures. But the thing is, for you, how do you do that back here in your training? And so that's what I would submit to you is that that's what needs to be figured out for both role two and role three surgeons is how do you simulate that? Actually, I would submit probably more role two surgeons. How do you do that more in training? So you've had quite a career and citations and awards have included two joint combination medals for valor, five bronze stars, performing multiple combat jumps and being a member of the Ranger Hall of Fame. Looking back at that career, what would you say was your most challenging role or assignment? So I would submit that I enjoyed, thoroughly enjoyed every assignment that I had in my military career period. All of them had different challenges in different ways. The theme for me as a challenge through the years was balancing my passion for for doing my job as, as well as I could with doing things with my family. And so I think balancing things in life are always very, very difficult. But I would submit that you've got to think about what your priorities are for you as an individual as well. And for me, then it's kind of interesting and then it's kind of ironic, but I thought for a number of years that my priority was to serve others. And so or whether that's through the military or whether that's with my family or whether that's through my beliefs and my religion, I believe spiritually that we're all put here to serve others. And so the challenge is keeping that in focus and balancing that amongst all the priorities for, for your life. And some years I did better and some years I did not. And so you asked me, what's a challenge in the assignments? I think, sure, everybody's got challenges in their assignments and their duties. Some of them are good challenges that you can overcome. Some of them are very challenging that that take a lot of effort. And and sure, that's great when you're able to work through those things. But I would submit that probably the challenge of life and living life well is very important. I know that's probably not the answer that you wanted, but it's the answer that I'll give you. You currently serve as the president of the Special Operations Medical Association. Tell us about that organization and other work you're doing to help the military, even though you've retired. So still wanting to give it back. Uh, so I've done more and more volunteer work in, in retired years, uh, which is which is a good thing. And so uh, SOMA, the Special Operations Medical Association, is probably one of the most unique organizations in the world. And it's not that I'm biased with it. I, I truly think that is it a combination of, of folks nationally, internationally, from the, the military, from the civilian sector, from so many different countries that all come together to share lessons learned and experiences. And they do that not only through what happens in their meetings every year or scientific assemblies, but also throughout the year with different activities and in combination with their official journal, uh, the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. And so those articles are also kind of unique in what you'll find in uh, the Journal of Special Operations Medicine is that there's probably more articles that have medics and uh, pre-hospitalists, more authors on those articles in that journal, which is good. Uh, That's the way it should be. I know that there's other journals that are like that, that uh, are geared for EMS or EMTs, which is also wonderful. And I would submit that that, uh, learning both uh, from pre-hospitalists and hospitalists and uh, doing that together is, is very, very important in order to, to understand uh, the whole system. And so, so yes, it's been a pleasure to be uh, the president of Special Operations.
Operations Medical Association and be involved with the JSOM or the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. Another organization I've been involved with is Garvey's Warrior Support, which is an organization out of Arkansas, which provides lodging and duck hunting and deer hunting and other hunting opportunities for injured and wounded warriors through the years and from current conflicts. And that was done in combination with, with several infantry colleagues that I've worked with through the years. And primarily one individual that, that lives in Arkansas, that him and his family very graciously opened up their home and their abilities, which has expanded to a couple of properties now for providing opportunities for hunting for wounded warriors. And then there's other minor things that I've helped out with through the years. You mentioned the importance of family and finding purpose and meaning in life. And we like to ask this of all of our guests. If your future family, say 50 or 100 years from now, unearthed this podcast, what would you want them to know about your career in military medicine? What I want them to know is the reason why I went into into the military and the reason why I went into medicine, and that was to serve others. And I would also want them to know that, that with having a family, that is a shared responsibility with both my wife and I in serving others as we've served our children and helped to mentor and guide them as well. And so what I'd want them to know is not any specifics, but rather generalities that uh, no matter what you're doing, no matter what occupation, no matter what you decide in reference to family, that what's most important is to be in service of others. Well, we've been speaking with Colonel Retired Dr. Russ Coatwall. Russ, thanks for sharing your stories and experiences and insights from a distinguished career. And thank you for your service. Thank you. One of the things, and I've, I've written this a couple of times in the newsletters uh, for the JSOM, there's one quote that I put in there a couple of times, and that is that history is written by those who write. And so people think that the people that do things will be remembered, and they're not. It's whoever writes about it that then makes that history. Whether it's right or wrong, what they write it's what they write that people will remember. And so you doing what you're doing right now is invaluable. And so you're capturing a lot of things from people that, that, like you said, people have already forgotten. They've forgotten near history, and let alone far history from as far back as the Civil War or World War II. And so I truly appreciate what you're doing because you're writing history. As a matter of fact, you're doing it to the best of your ability as you're doing it from those who actually lived it and you're providing it in their words and that you're guiding them throughout this whole process. So thank you for doing it. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team War Docs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's WarDocsPodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, WarDocs has you covered. Spread the word.